You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello and welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And this is Miranda. And so... Um, Got a fun episode. Uh, this is probably something that most people have heard of at least a little bit at some point, high school, maybe like a entry-level psychology class and college courses or something. Uh, and he's usually referred to as the Little Albert experiment, right? You heard about this, right, Miranda? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this was in my Psych 101 class freshman year of college. We watched the videos. We we talked about uh, Little Albert and, and everything he went through, so... And this was way before um, my behavioral science days, so very, very pervasive within society, within our scientific culture. Yeah, sure. And this is often used as sort of an example of kind of what might be considered unethical research behavior. Um, and we'll want to go in a deep dive about this, as the title of the episode would imply. Um, but this is the infamous experiment. It was conducted by a man named John B. Watson and Rosalie Rayner. Um, and this experiment involved associating a very loud and frightening sound with the, um, the presence of a small furry creature. And then that this, uh, this presentation was um, with a small child, given the alias of Albert, right? Exactly. And there were a variety of small furry creatures that we will describe. Yeah, I think that this, the setup of this has been described in different ways, I think, in different versions of the story, but we're going to go through the actual article. Um, we're going to thoroughly depict the experiment as it was carried out, as it was published in the original article by Watson and Rayner, um, and, uh, and we'll try to answer as many questions and address as many either misconceptions or myths that might exist about what happened in this experiment, right? Cool. Awesome. So should we go into a quick overview? Yeah, let's let's go into it. Sure. So the study was called Conditioned Emotional Reactions, and it was originally published in 1920 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. And this is a journal of this name, and it still exists, right? But is that the same journal? Now, I'm not totally sure. Um, it, it has the same name. Um, I just don't know if it is actually the same journal that uh, was originally around in the 1920s. I, I feel like it would be. It's kind of hard mm -hmm. to imagine that they would just like repurpose the name, but it, you know, anything's possible, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I didn't really look at that too deeply, but I was I just was interested when I first was preparing for this to I wanted to know whether or not that journal was still around. And there is a journal called the Journal of Experimental Psychology, so it's possible it's the same yeah. one. Could it be the same permutation? Orientation? Yeah. The same? Yes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a version of a thing we know. Yes. All right. And so as previously mentioned, the authors were um, John B. Watson and his student, Rosalie Rayner. And that relation is going to be important later on. And uh, they opened by stating that the that infants generally have very few emotional states. So that's that's part of the foundation of their argument is that infants really only demonstrate being happy, mad, scared, and essentially indifferent to what's going on around them. That that's about as complex as the as their emotions get. But that emotions become more complex as a child develops toward adulthood and of course into adulthood as well. Yeah, so the theory then is that some sort of conditioned reflex factors, such as, you know, experience and learning, 
must account for the range and complexity of emotions that adults experience because we certainly don't come out of the womb experiencing the wide range of feelings and emotions and sensations um, that we that we ultimately end up experiencing. Right. And so for this study, let's go ahead and, and dive now into how the experiment was set up. Okay. Um, they chose their participant who, as I mentioned before, they gave the alias Albert. Um, and the reason that they chose him was because he was very stable as a baby. He was unemotional and he was showing generally very healthy, normal development. Okay. So we've got to kind of ask the question, you know, why were these characteristics preferred? Right. So it appears that they really felt that given his very content disposition that he was at less risk of harm from the experiment itself. Right. Yeah. They didn't want to permanently damage a child. So they tried to go with someone, I think, relatively convinced of what they were going to be able to produce in their experiment. They wanted to start with a a participant who was at sort of the that seemed like it had a, a robust safeguard against the, the kind of trauma they were planning to inflict on him. And by all accounts, he sounds like a really happy-go-lucky, you know, laid-back baby. Yeah, even getting into some of the experiment, it took mm-hmm. took him a little while. Uh, he was only about nine months old when they recruited him for his study. Um, and when it began, the study began, as many studies do, with a series of sort of assessments and tests. And specifically, they were conducting some of their own emotional assessments. And this included presenting various items and um, experiences and generally recording how Albert would react to those things, those events, whatever it was they gave him. And yeah, the the items and experiences were certainly varied. So they gave him a little monkey. There was a little dog, a rabbit, a rat, um, as well as things a little weirder, like a burning newspaper. Uh, There were some masks with hair and without hair important distinctions right. um also a, a cotton ball yeah uh generally i guess items that might elicit some kind of reaction out of Maybe. some <laughs> but they also did some other things where they you know tried handling him somewhat roughly by pretending to drop him or you know taking things away quickly and they noted that none of these produced a sufficiently distressing response from albert yeah um looking for some kind of overt emotional reaction out of him. They just didn't really get much through all of this, even trying to provoke him a little bit. Um, So they really reported he showed no fear to any of the objects or situations. They added that no one really ever saw him cry uh, or even demonstrate uh, anger or anything. So it's possible he was just a robot. Um, But uh, instead, he tended to just sort of manipulate and play with things that were set in front of him, sort of regardless of what they were. So it just was... uh, he was unperturbed. Yeah. So, you know, failing all of these things uh, and the fact that he was, you know, fairly content, they decided to try a really loud sound to see if they could get some sort of fear reaction out of him. They reasoned that this sound would uh, was guaranteed to produce some kind of fear response. And so they hung this uh, four foot long, which is 1.22 meters for our metric friends, uh, this uh, this four foot long steel rod that was sort of hanging behind him. And another experimenter would orient Albert's attention away from the rod so he couldn't see it. He wasn't really paying attention to it. And then an experimenter standing behind Albert would take out this hammer and he would they would hit the steel rod. They'd strike it with the, with the hammer and to produce, obviously, a very loud sound. Clang. Yep. For that. <laughs> Clang. 
I like it. I'm probably going to drop <laughs> it anyway, but <laughs> just copy clang, and paste clang, that. Clang. That's hilarious. <laughs> so although he was startled, Albert actually didn't cry until about three times of them actually presenting the this loud clang sound with the striking of the rod. Yeah, and a lot of people are going to ask at this point, why? Why do that? What's the What's the point? And why are you? Yeah, yeah. why are you torturing this poor little kid? Um, they state that the purpose of the experiment was to discover if it was possible to one. And I'm going to quote him here: condition fear of the animal by visually presenting it and simultaneously striking a steel bar. Two, transfer to other animals or other objects. Three, what is the effect uh, of time upon such conditioned emotional responses? And four, if such emotional responses have not died out, what laboratory methods can be devised for their removal? End quote. Mm, Yeah. So they had a plan moving forward at the beginning of this that we'll see doesn't quite go as, uh, as expected. But let's... Okay. All of that so far was just the setup. This was preparing for the actual experiment. Like I said, they did those assessments, nothing. Um, They tried (laughs) hanging a metal bar behind him and hitting it with a hammer. Victory, we've got this child uh, in a fit. So yeah, time to actually begin the experiment. Exactly, so about a couple months later, now little Albert is 11 months and three days old, and they begin. They first presented a white rat to Albert, okay? So it was a rat. It was white colored. That's the thing. Um, and uh, he's, he's a curious baby. So upon seeing the rat, he actually reached out to sort of touch it and play with its fur. Was it a real rat? I believe so. So the moment that little Albert reached his little tiny ravioli baby hand <laughs> and touched the animal, an experimenter behind him struck the steel bar, clang. <laughs> And at first he didn't cry, right? Right. So then they presented the rat again. Clang. And again. Clang. And again. And Clang. they were hitting the bar all along. The next time they actually presented the rat, uh, the Albert fell forward and began to sort of do a whimpering sort of sound. Oh. Yeah. Poor guy. So they went ahead and put the experiment on hold for a week to avoid, quote, disturbing the child too seriously. How nice. Yeah. So. Um, so kind. Right. So they come back after that week and they uh, presented the rat again just to see his reaction without the um, the metal bar this time, without hitting it with the hammer. And Albert tentatively reaches his ravioli hand toward it again. Uh, but he didn't actually touch it. And uh, another thing they wanted to also play with, and we'll come back to this several times, is they, they gave him some toys that he knew. In this case, it was specifically some toy blocks. And with the blocks, he immediately began playing with the toys as he would normally. So, you know, just demonstrating that they get this consistent effect. It's not just when they hand me something or when they're in the mm-hmm. room, he cries or whatever might be going on, trying to clearly show that when one thing is present, they get a type of reaction. And when something else is there, they get a different type of reaction. Okay. Nice little control there. Yeah. Yeah. So then in the paper, they give a little summary of several presentations all stitched together. It's like a, a little bit of a movie montage in which it kind of rapidly cuts variations on scaring the poop out of this poor little child. Right. So we'll just quickly go back and forth on these to uh, describe what it, it was like. Okay. So first they did uh, a rat with the presentation of the bar. That's Clang. the startling sound. I'm so going to say rat plus bar to indicate that when they gave him the rat, if he touched it, then they immediately hit the bar. And this next time he startled, fell over, but still didn't start uh, crying just yet. Again, rat plus bar. Clang. And he startled, fell over, looked away, but no crying. So then the rat plus bar, the same thing as the previous response. 
Then rat alone, he whimpered and withdrew. Then we have the rat plus the bar. Clang. This time he falls over and he starts whimpering some more. Then again, the rat plus the bar. Clang. He's startled and he cries. Then the rat alone, and I'm going to go and read them directly because I think they, they <laughs> described it in, in words that really just – they do it justice. So, quote, the instant the rat was shown, the baby began to cry. Almost instantly, he turned sharply to the left, fell over on left side, raised himself on all fours, and began to crawl away so rapidly that he was caught with difficulty before reaching the edge of the table. Ah. So, I know. Sufficiently frightened child, it seems. Yeah. Oh, man. So, they, they did all that in one session. And then after five days, they brought him back. And first, a little retention evaluation just to see would he maintain his reaction to the rat after five days without having any interaction, just as normal day-to-day stuff. But first, they went ahead and presented the blocks, you know, the control, and he, he played with those completely normally. Then they presented uh, the rat, um, this time with no bar, just to see sort of a, a introduction response. Um, when he saw the rat, he startled um, and he whimpered and he turned away from it. So then we go back to the blocks, and he's again playing happily. Yay. Um, then rat again. Again, this time no bar, and as soon as they presented it, he started to crawl away from it. Again, back to the blocks, and we have happy little Albert back in his in his happy place. Right. So now they want to go for a transfer test. And so first they presented a, a furry, I believe it was white. I don't recall if they described the color, but I think it was a furry white rabbit. So similar to rat in some ways, has some uh, similar characteristics, might sort of remind him of a rat, uh, the rat. And uh, simply having the rabbit nearby, Albert instantly burst into tears. Um, then they brought the rabbit to him, so it touched him, and he crawled away from it while crying the whole time. And then he played with some more blocks. <laughs> yep. Uh, then they wanted to see how does he react to a dog. And he didn't react as strongly in its presence um, as he did to the rabbit, uh, but he did move away from it. Uh, they did bring the dog over, so again, he had to touch it. And when, he, when they had him touch it, he did start crying again. And then they allowed him again to play with his blocks, which he happily did. And the next one's very fun yeah i don't know where they got this but they nor do i want to i don't think they they got a a seal skin fur coat they presented that to albert and again he immediately uh withdrew from it and he began to cry again next they went ahead and presented a bag of cotton wool so he kicked it away then he played with the bag and then he played with the cotton he decided bag cotton that's okay. Yeah, it sort of warmed up to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they were interested in uh, in human hair. So they had the uh, one of the experimenters, I believe it, it may have actually been Watson, um, with uh, had sort of gray white hair, um, and he put his head down so that his hair was next to Albert. And Albert's reaction um, was also negative to this. Um, and they did try this with other experimenters um, that had other colored hair, so not white hair. And apparently, he just sort of played with their hair when they put their head by his face. Interesting thing, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So then they went ahead and presented a Santa Claus mask, which I can't imagine that a Santa Claus mask from the 1920s with a white beard is a comforting item. That sounds fairly, (laughs) fairly creepy. Um, To which, again, Albert was upset. You know, it's possible their industriousness with crafts in the 1920s far exceeds our current levels. I mean, that's fair. Maybe the handmade <laughs> nature of it. You know, there's a lot of detail there. Yeah. Maybe. I, I don't know. Pro- pro- I actually agree. I think it's probably was terrifying. <laughs> but 
All right. So all of this with these transfer trials is, I guess, um, victory, success. Uh, yeah, Something. I mean, they certainly demonstrated that this fear could be acquired. It could be learned, right? And that, at least as far as their tests ran, it could be generalized to things that that were bearing only a some somewhat of a resemblance to the initial fearful item, in this case, the rat. Um, but they were curious how long this would last as well. So five days later, they go ahead and, and present another test to see to what extent these reactions remain intact. And first, presenting, as always, with those toy blocks for him to play with equals Happy Albert. Yeah, and so then they went ahead and presented the rat, and Albert moved away from it, but he did not cry. And they described this reaction as, quote, much less marked than on the first presentation the previous week, end quote. And I don't know why they decided to do this next, but they decided to reestablish the association of the rat with the steel bar. So obviously that means that, again, presenting the rat and then when the rat was presented, they struck the steel bar with the hammer to scare the tar out of him again. And it's, it's really worth describing exactly what their description of Albert's response was to this, this noise and the, re, uh, the reintroduction of the noise with the rat. He displayed, quote, of reaction violent. Was it violent reaction? And you just, is reaction violent? No, that's actually, that was, that, was, that was the entire sentence that they wrote. That's why I wanted to put it there. Reaction it was just so funny violent. to me. As they just said, like, we, they described how they represented the, yeah, presented the bar with the rat. Reaction period. violent, reaction period. Violence. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's why it's so funny. So, yeah. <laughs> Reaction violent. Period. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, the next thing they did was, again, presenting the rat only without the uh, bar and uh, had almost the, as strong of a reaction um, as they did with that pairing. Um, although they did say that there was no crying again when they presented the rat alone. So they presented the rat alone again, and little Albert crawled away to avoid the rat. Uh, then the rat alone for a third time. He whimpered, and he sort of fell over, but that was it. Finally, they gave this poor little dude a break, and they let him play with some blocks. Now, they were also interested in what kind of generalization they might get, they might get out of this. Um, they... Decided also to look for some generalization. As I mentioned, when they presented the rabbit and the dog previously, he did have some reactions to that. Um, but they decided to directly pair the dog and the rabbit with individually uh, with the sound of the hammer on, on that steel rod on that bar. And upon the very first presentation with the steel rod, sweet little Albert had about as severe of a reaction as you might imagine. And so after that, there followed a series of presentations going back and forth with the rabbit and the dog, each again alone. Uh, so presenting the rabbit, then presenting the dog, vice versa. And then um, once again, pairing the dog with the sound of the hammer on the bar. And they did those variations on it. Um, we sort of described at length what a routine of that looked like. They did various versions of that going back and forth between dog, rabbit, bar, no bar, blocks, that sort of thing. Um, and then they went back to the rat with, and they paired it once again with the sound. So apparently at one point, uh, the dog barked near Albert, further cementing itself as a fearful entity. And also the author was amused to note that the dog also conditioned itself as fearful to the observers. So this was just a scary dog. Upon that one bark. <laughs> 
Um, they did try one last retention session a month later. Um, they did it with the Santa mask, the fur coat, the rat, the rabbit, the dog, and of course, his favorite blocks. And he did react to all of them, except, of course, the, the blocks. Um, although, apparently, he had the most mild reaction toward the rabbit itself. So we can kind of round out the conclusion of the whole study. And and really, you know, the authors concluded that the complex emotional responses, they could actually be conditioned. And the implication is that many, if not most, are likely learned slash conditioned emotions. And the authors further hypothesize that the effects of the conditioning would produce a change that would last into adulthood. Um, they do go on in their conclusion to take some shots at Freudian psychology, um, which is pretty funny, uh, and how to use their data to better account for the causes of behavior than you might find in a, a Freudian worldview, if you will. Um, and so you're probably wondering exactly what they said. Um, it wasn't anything that specific, but I'll go ahead and just say that they speculated that when Albert was an adult, so after he's left them and gone into adulthood and he can, he maintains this fear with him, which I don't know why if they're planning to uncondition it, they would have that speculation, but let's say that that's what happened. Um, they were speculating that as an adult, he is going to have some trouble with this this phobia he has of white furry things, and he's going to go see a psychotherapist, and that therapist is going to explain Albert's fear of white furry things as Albert having had a dream in which he was scolded for playing with pubic hair. Um, <laughs> that was their idea of what might happen. And they followed that by saying that, um, most emotions would be attributed to subconscious causes, um, and that they are better explained as they have done in their study with a history of conditioning in early life and how you can see generalization of that conditioning to other things. So something that's more simple can be associated with things that are maybe a little bit more abstract from that simple initial learning experience. And that was a better way of explaining or hy hypothesizing what might be the cause of behavior than something like a subconscious sexual dream that you had. So <laughs> I just, it, it was, there's like logical fa fallacies abound in their, their straw man argument and whatnot that they give. Um, I did find it amusing though. <laughs> well, that sounds a little bit like parsimony, right? Which was something we touched on in our hypnosis episode that, you know, the, the you know, the simplest uh, account for a phenomenon needs to be considered, you know, before really any more complex uh, iterations of that. Yeah. And, and it's worth describing here. And, you know, I think parsimony is a great topic to bring up at any point. Um, but what what a lot of people have a problem with the term like the simplest uh, like theory or hypothesis or whatever. And what that really means is requiring the fewest number of assumptions and that the assumptions that are made are also as you know, small as possible. So, because you can make some pretty big assumptions about things, um, or you can make assumptions that are still fairly conservative, scientifically speaking, about what might be going on. So, there are a lot of myths that have existed about this. I actually tried to round them up, but I had trouble nailing down a lot of the myths that um, that people have provided about the little, little Albert experiment. Um, and I think there are also some questions that people might have um, and have raised about this experiment. So. One of the first things that you might ask is, why did the mom agree to this? Um, did they have a gun to her head? Is she like, you know, is this like a Guantanamo Bay type thing? Um, 
it wasn't anything like that. Um, it's unclear what her motivations were. Um, apparently, she received a dollar for participating, which even accounting for inflation, I can't imagine was that amazing of compensation. She did work on the campus where this took place, um, the hospital campus. And so it's possible that she may have felt that it was a cheap, free, or get in the fact that she was getting a dollar, maybe even paid in a way, daycare. Uh, so that's one possible reason. Um, she also may have felt that she was pressured to do this because of the seniority of the staff who were conducting it, possibly because of the gender of the staff that were conducting it versus her. It's obviously female. This is the 1920s. Um, and, uh, and that she didn't have, I guess, the clout to refuse. Um, and maybe they it was pitched in such a way that it just seemed like we're just, we want to involve your kid in this experiment. It should be fine. It's not going to get harmed. And that was as far as that, uh, that sales pitch went. She was like, sure, why not? Um, un- it's just unclear. We don't know exactly what her motivation was for participating in this. Um, another thing I've heard is that Watson actually got fired for this study. But that's not true, right? No, not for the study. Uh, he did get fired, though. And it was because of the relationship he had with his student, Rosalie uh, Rayner. Um, which what he had an affair with her. So that's why they fired him. Um, and he went on to make tons of money in advertising, as I understand it. So that's, that's what happened with Watson. That's, you know, just that's what you, that's what happens as a disgraced man in the 1920s. Sure. Why not? You aren't disgraced for very long. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do we know if little, little Albert actually grew up to be afraid of all furry white things and actually go see that psychoanalyst who gave him a really re- weird reason for his fear? Right. Uh, no. And I'll say more about that in a second. I actually heard, I remember when I first heard this story, there was some people who, I mean, this had been published in some of the psychology textbooks. I should have actually dug through them when I was d- prepping for this, but um, there were things they talked about. Some people thought that he he did grow up and went on to be a psychologist because of his phobia. Some people thought that he went on to be uh, essentially crippled by his phobia, and that was sort of a thing. Um, other people speculated that he just got over it and didn't really remember um, into his adulthood years. Um, but I don't think a lot of that was just, I think, purely guessing. I don't think anybody had any evidence to go on in that in that instance. So honestly, I think one of the big questions everybody's going to have is, what happened to little Albert? So first, after their retention check, Albert's mother ended up leaving the hospital and they were unable to test any of their strategies for what they were planning on doing, which was to decondition the fear that they had created. Uh, it didn't really mention this during um, when we were talking about how the setup and the purpose and all of that were was going to go. And obviously we got to the conclusion and didn't mention the fact that they had, that they had gone through this. Um, this conditioning thing. Okay, so uh, some of the things they talked about that they could do for this deconditioning, because um, they, they hypothesized that uh, these responses would persist indefinitely in the home um, unless there was some specific method that kind of accidentally happened fortuitously and un- and deconditioned that response. Um, but they suggested that they would uh, try and present him with the things that were eliciting fear just continuously without the frightening sound. Um, they also described that this might not necessarily work. And so if that was ineffective, uh, they might also try reconditioning by giving him those fearful objects, but trying to create a different association with them by uh, by engaging in some pleasurable things. And they describe very 
in, in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Things like touching his lips and his nipples to try and have that association with the rabbits. I'm not sure that that's better. Um, so I guess dodged a bullet on that one, Albert. Um, they also uh, described potentially uh, pairing the presence of the of the animals with food. So having it be that they signaled that food was coming, almost like a Pavlov thing, and that otherwise trying to uh, create what they described as constructive activities around those fearful items and by imitating playing with them and and also just giving him the opportunity to play with them without there being uh, so he's directly engaged with those usually i said the furry things so sort of being able to touch the furry things um without the sound of the of the bar impeding that experience but um yeah kind of weird stuff that they had in that they had in there. store <laughs> Yeah. That he dodged for sure. So, so he is. So, he did leave after that first phase of the experiment. And Albert, actually, particularly little Albert, his parents did not give him that name. So we don't. It was unclear what his real name was for a long time. Yeah. So it made it hard for him to track down. Um, there was somebody named Hall Beck, um, Doctor Hall Beck, and he is out of Appalachian State University. And um, they were curious, so he actually enrolled several of his students to, to do this little project where they tried to track him down. And, uh, and over seven years, they uh, scoured historical materials. They went through um, facial recognition and, and all of this stuff to try and narrow the range on possible people that it could be. And eventually they were able to uh, get enough evidence to, together to believe that um, Albert's name was actually Douglas. And... Um, they the part of what they did is that they matched everything that they knew about Douglas corresponded with what they knew about Albert. Um, so the mother's profile was exactly the same. Um, they both worked at the same uh, hospital at the same campus at the same time. Uh, their birth times would have been about exactly right based on how old Albert was at the time of the study. Douglas would have been the same age. Um, they were both uh, the, as I mentioned, the, from the pictures of the experiment and the pictures of Douglas, they seem to match pretty well. And they also, Douglas left the hospital at the same time that Albert left the hospital. So there really was a lot of evidence to suggest that this was probably Douglas. So it's really sad, actually, because it turned out that little Albert, who was actually little Douglas, he died at six years old after he acquired hydrocephalus. And so we're really not sure to this day if his fear of of furry white objects continued after after he left the experiment. Yeah, or if they would have continued into adulthood. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was also another myth I forgot to mention previously that uh, his mother uh, left because she found out how he was being treated. So that's why she left. I mean, it's possible, but there's really no evidence to suggest that that's what happened. We just don't really know. And hydrocephalus is a condition that it is very unlikely it was caused by, uh, this is a, a swelling of the brain, very unlikely this was caused by any of this experiment. I, I don't think there's any way it could have been, um, but I suppose that's another slightly unknown variable in all of this. But no, it seems like that was probably just something that happened to him, and unfortunately he died um, when he was very young. So uh, we don't have the follow-up experiment to see how he, he lived into to old age. So, uh, you know, what do we take home from this? What have we learned from the little Albert study? So I think it's worth considering the fact that this is one of the first real scientific approaches to studying behavioral psychology, you know, and, and behavior and, and responding. And in that way, it is 
a, a valuable little piece of of that history. Well, it was certainly a different way to approach trying to understand how things that seem so, I guess, in our mind, you know, and what I'm talking about is emotions. It was, it was a cool way to take something that seemed intangible and tractable out there in a way that we couldn't really study it by uh, looking at just taking a totally different approach to how we might study this. So I think as, as much as we might criticize some of the way that the study was done, like they had those little bits of controls, but this wasn't very systematic. There was, you know, there was a lot of things inside this uh, where we don't really know exactly what the data were. They sort of just narrated what happened. So we don't get to see any trends where we can identify how things are, are going based on, you know, an objective view of, of some data. Um, we don't see any numbers or any graphs or anything like that. That being said, like I said, th this is a cool way to uh, that they they went about trying to investigate this phenomenon, and it it became infamous not just because of the fact that it was a kind of weird study, um, but also because it, it really did show, uh, prove their hypothesis that at least to some extent this could be learned. And if you look at anything that somebody does fearfully and what they're reacting to, what that situation is, the context or the thing, like, you know, a lot of people are afraid of spiders, heights, snakes, whatever the phobia might be, that they're reacting to something. And where that reaction comes from might not be the thing itself, but some characteristic of it. And I, you know, I don't think that it's ever been agreed upon by this by the psychological community or the scientific community that that's how every single phobia develops. But I think that he did go to show that that is something that can happen at the very least. And there might be other things that would account for other the ways that other phobias develop. And um, and it would have you know it would have been great to have a little bit more of a robust experimental design, but. Um, it was nonetheless an interesting sort of approach to this. I think that it's probably for the best that they didn't try to recondition based on some of the strategies they they pitched. But um, it was it, this certainly made its mark in history, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover it was just so that people had this. You know, a lot of people hear this experiment, but they don't get the details. So the the purpose of this was to really dig in to that whole story. Like, let's tell the whole thing. Uh, the article bit by bit, you know, just give a, a total overview of what was going on. So it's, you know, interesting piece of history. Now, you know, the more, you know, the more, you know, Ding. did you learn? <laughs> I love it. Did you learn something in this one? I did. I, no. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of those, one of those things that you do, you learn about in a high school psychology class or an introductory psychology class. And then it just kind of falls by the wayside as, as just something um, some kind of common knowledge, some kind of common event in in human psychological history. But there is a lot there to delve into and there's a lot to consider. You know, we've come a long way as far as the ethics within um, human research. And, you know, the, it was studies like these really that that set the precedence for that. You know, we, we decided as a community that uh, ethical treatment of human subjects needed to be considered. And you know, it, it was unfortunately through the experience of having some unethical research occur that we came to that conclusion. Yeah, that's perfectly fair. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I want to do a quick correction. So insert correction sound effect, whatever that might be. Sound of an eraser, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. And so 
I, w- I was very proud of how we did the intelligence episodes. I thought those turned out essentially how I wanted them to. Um, and that being said, we did get some feedback from listeners that uh, that wanted to correct us on some things and uh, and make some requests about uh, some future coverage of this topic, which is which is great. I always appreciate the feedback. And one of the corrections we got was I sort of flippantly remarked during that episode that the um, the IQ test lacked validity because it wasn't measuring what it was intended to measure, which is um, the entity of intelligence, which is an undefined thing. And therefore, they're really measuring whatever the outcome of the test was, which was just something that they designed. Well, the the mistake I made in there was suggesting that uh, validity corresponded to something in reality, some ultimate truth with a capital T type of thing. Um, and this is something we talked about in the episode where we discussed that concept of truth and some of the underlying assumptions and the, the various domains of truth and truth criteria that people have applied to this inside of philosophy. And, uh, and that, that idea of there being a thing that could correspond to validity is not really, a, that doesn't really make sense. So the point being that validity is actually measured specifically in a lot of different ways. And one way that validity is measured is by getting um, different score or getting the same result from different tests. That's one way you can sort of have this convergent validity on something. And so there actually are many tests that do have, uh, that have shown that there is validity to the IQ test um, based on the metric of do we get overlapping things here? So that's not to say that intelligence is real. It is to say that the uh, results from the measurement tool that is used for that performance uh, do yield some consistent um, corresponding results, and that that leads, I guess, that lends support to the idea that that is a useful measure because it uh, it will be te- detected across multiple platforms by multiple people, um, and so that there's some nuance there is essentially what that came down to, um, and so glad that that correction was on there. Um, I, I personally, you know, I'm, I will reiterate the point that I, I thought that I was, uh, I was perfectly, uh, fair, uh, to the concept of intelligence, um, much more so than, uh, than I thought it really deserved personally. Um, but that being said, you know, I think that, uh, some other people requested that we do a subsequent episode where we, uh, d- also describe more of what might be considered the merits. Um, we talked about in the episode, some of, uh, what has happened with the future of testing, um, and how it has changed over time. And, uh, there's probably some more to unpack inside of that. So, uh, we could describe a little bit more of what that has turned into. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's useful to just make sure that we are careful in our language before just saying things like lacks validity without describing uh, what validity can look like. Um, so that's my, that's my little PSA slash listener mail slash, uh, correction (laughs) thing. Perfect. And again, we do really appreciate, you know, any of the feedback or, you know, critique interaction, uh, whatever anyone wants to send our way, we will gladly accept it. Yeah. And, uh, I think this is a good time to point out, uh, we did record this, um, the, the video for this, for anyone who's a Patreon supporter, if you're interested in seeing what our faces look like, um, you probably don't want to, but if you are interested in it, you could become Patriots. I'm just kidding. Miranda's lovely. Um, you just have to tolerate looking at me for a little bit. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that that is available to patrons if that's something you're interested in uh, consider becoming a patreon and uh, those that's some of the content that we will be releasing to them awesome with all of the errors and mistakes that we cut out of the actual recording 
you, you get to hear how uneloquent we really sound. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's disturbing. Just kidding. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, do you have anything else? I don't. Perfect. Well, let's go it's ahead and wrap times. this up then. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. This is Miranda. We are out. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Uh, the dog and the rabbit with the sound. I gave an introduction for the wrong section. Okay. Um, oh my God, I'm so lost. Hold on, give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.